0: Hey everybody, Oliver Altine here, Authenticity Show producer. I just wanted to say a couple words before we get started with today's episode. Uh, First of all, thank you for listening. We really appreciate our listeners. We make this show out of love. That's the only reason we do it. And we're really happy you're out there listening. And please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please connect with us on social media if you haven't already done so. We would love to hear from you. And furthermore, this episode is actually a re-presentation of episode 14 from way back in October of 2017. This is the episode where I really felt like we had something special with this podcast, something different. And you know, here's the thing. Sometimes if you don't have a name for something, then you have no control over it. But when you have a name for something, you can think about it more clearly and exert some sort of control over it. And so that's, that's what this episode is, is about for me sacred deceptions this is a thing we encounter this every day in our lives but we may not have had a name for it before after listening to this episode you'll have a name for that and you'll have more clarity around it and more control over it all right here we go sacred deceptions listening to the authenticity show where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. In this episode, Carlos and Satch discuss the idea of sacred deceptions, initiations, shamanism, ceremonial magic poetic lies that reveal a deeper truth.
1: It is true without falsehood, and most certain. What is below is like that which is above, and what is above is like that which is below, to accomplish the miracle of the one thing as all things were formed by one by the thought of one. So all things are born from this one thing by choice. It's father is the sun. It's mother, the moon, the wind carries it in its belly. It's nurse is the earth. It is the author of all perfection throughout the world. The power is strong when changed into earth. Separate earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, gently and with care. Ascend from earth to heaven and descend again to earth to unite the power of the higher and lower things. Thus you will obtain the glory of the whole world and the shadows will leave you. This has more strength than strength itself for it overcomes all subtle things and penetrates every solid. Thus the world was framed. Hence proceed wonders which means are here. Therefore I am Hermes Trismegistus, having the three parts of the world philosophy. That which I had to say of the operation of the sun is perfected. So that was the Tabula Smaragdina, or the Emerald Tablet of Hermes. Who is Hermes? No one really knows. Oh. All Isn't right. that
2: cool? I love a good mystery.
1: Right. Um, it is a mystery. It's a sacred mystery with a capital M, mm-hmm. because um, those that study it more deeply mm-hmm. are Hermeticists. They're people who follow the, and seek the philosophy of Hermes Trismegistus. Some people say that Hermes was a god.
2: Yeah, I've I've heard that. That's, you know, what I think of when I hear the word Hermes. Yeah. Um, The thing is, in
1: ancient cultures, of course, through time, uh, you know, one culture borrows some of the mythology of the previous culture, and it gets changed a little bit Mm -hmm. along the way. So... The origin that I'm familiar with is that it derives from thoth or thoth, which hmm. is the root of the word thought, Oh. Um, or in some pronunciations, jehuti, hmm. right? The Egyptian version of it. Hmm. You know, and, and trismegistus means literally thrice great. Okay. Or, you know, master of the three uh, components of, okay. of the sacred philosophy. That's, that's, so it was a moniker, um, probably not his birth name. Um, mm. Probably more of a, of a sacred title. And in all likelihood, it represents more of a concept than an actual being itself or a person. That the school of Hermes was, um, you know, those acolytes and devotees of the Hermetic philosophy. Okay. And at the core of it is this document, which is called the Tabula Smaradina, which is the emerald tablet that I just read you. Hmm. But wh- why did I start with that? Yeah, I, yeah. I think more importantly, because I think people listening to this might be wondering, you know, why are we talking about this? Um, you and I had discussed the idea of what a sacred deception is. Sure. Yeah, exactly. A sacred
2: deception. Yeah.
1: It's it's hard to imagine two more opposite things, you know, something yeah, sacred right, and something, right. de- you know, deceptive. Right. It sounds like an oxymoron. It you does. Know, but um but it works because there is a paradox. You know, you mentioned earlier to me uh about the ethics around lying. Yeah. You know, you gave the example of uh a parent teasing a kid or playing around with a kid and, and maybe saying something positive like, Wow, you're you're as strong as Superman, I think you said. Yeah, I did, yeah, I was you know, thinking of that one. Kids yeah. love that. They absolutely right. love it. And yeah, it's a lie. It is. But it's coming from a good place. It's perhaps um, beneficial
2: for them to believe that they can be strong. Yeah. Right. Right. At that age. Yeah, exactly. And and it sort of reminds me of um, the topic of these cultural lies that we collectively tell children like, like what? Like Santa Claus. All oh, right. Uh, the Easter bunny, the tooth fairy, these kinds of things. And we don't feel like we're deceiving them. With malice you know what I mean we're not deceiving them to get over on these kids to prove how dumb they are right mm-hmm. I mean it's not what we're doing we do it with you know we we sort of tell this little fib to these kids um, with a collective giggle it's like, part of the like fun. We're, we're, we're up to something you know mm-hmm. and that way when they finally learn the reality of, of the situation then they're sort of initiated now. They sort of are stepping up into a little a little bit higher level of adulthood. Initiation, mm-hmm. I think, is something sorely lacking in
1: modern Western culture. Absolutely. Um, it exists, but certainly not to the degree that it used to exist. Yeah. And that's a component of sacred deception. Yeah. You know, yeah. why are they suddenly a man or a woman at the point which they choose to initiate them into that level. Right. You know, it's a convincing moment, but what is it? What are you convincing? You're, you're, it's a deception. You're, you're not necessarily speaking uh, a fact, but you're certainly speaking an inner truth, a truth of maybe a different order, like a truth that relates to your um, religion or it maybe relates to your beliefs on some level, or mm-hmm. it relates to a lesson from nature.
2: Yeah. I heard Joseph Campbell talk about some sort of indigenous culture that, um, taught the boys or I guess the children to be terrified of the masks that were in their society, you know, the, 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 the masks of all the, you know, the monsters, the spirits and things like that. And they were trained to fear them. And then at a certain age, the men would uh, kidnap a boy, take him out someplace, and they'd be wearing the masks that he's been trained to be fearful of. Mm. And then he would have to f- basically fight one of the grownups who's wearing the mask. And the grownups would allow the, the, the boy to win. And then after the fight was over, the adult would take the mask off and then put the mask on the child. And, that, and now he's a man. That's so cool. He, he had to face his, his fear. He had to face the terror of the mask in order to become a man. Oh,
1: that's a great example. It's beautiful. When I was up in Mendocino, I met an older gentleman and he told me a story about his childhood growing up um, in more of an Appalachian culture. Okay. Um, He was talking about how the culture of initiation was retained there all the way from the European times. And he described a situation where If you can picture this, um, a young man during his initiation would be brought out to a secret area of the forest and it would be tied to the tree. Okay. He'd have to be there all day fasting and so forth. And after the sun set, all of a sudden, very, very far away, coming from a, a nondescript direction, like seemingly from all around is this sound a deep whirring vibratory sound that at first he could just faintly make out and then suddenly it gets closer and closer closer and this vibration starts to get so heavy and thick around him that his mind begins to play all sorts of havoc and tricks with him yeah you could feel the vibrational frequency around getting thicker stronger and more resonant And what it was, was the sound of a bull roarer, but not one. Many, many bull roars being swung by all the adults, all the initiates. And as they got closer and closer, they were also in masks. So the sound got so terrifying by the time it came within a close range. By that time, the trance state set into the young initiate's mind was so heavy that, and of course the darkness obscured vision. He um, imagined all sorts of things, his worst possible fear coming at him. Yeah. And then the masks, of course, obscured their look as well. And finally when they revealed themselves um, key members of the tribe would they after taking him off the tree would would give or bestow an important lesson and eventually the initiate is given a roarer of their own and of course the cycle completes itself yeah but having overcome that fear imagine how receptive his mind was to the lessons of the elders in the tribe
2: right he suddenly is able to learn the lesson in a unique way that he maybe wasn't able to learn the lesson as powerfully before
1: yeah his whole his whole world in a way his previous world cracked and through that crack a light of a whole different world comes in that's the power of a sacred deception wow. I think that's great
2: Wow, it's beautiful Sacred deception like that. And I feel that in our culture, and you know, standard American culture, at least here in California, um, it's something that we're missing. You know, we have little small deceptions. You know, I, I remember when I was in sixth grade, my mom and I moved to a new town, and I had to start a new elementary school. And it was scary, it was terrifying, and I met, you know, some some new kids and uh, we sort of took to each other and at recess, I think it was the first or second day we went around the back of the building and they told me that, um, uh, I had to do the possum sit-up. <laughs> so they did the possum sit-up. And so I laid down and they covered my eyes and another kid pulled his pants down to moon me. And so they made me do a sit-up so that I would smack my face into his butt. <laughs> That's the possum sit-up, right? So hazing. it was, it was a hazing. Yeah, it was, it was, um, a little a little miniature rite of passage in order to be part of the crew. Um, I think actually what happened was, um, I sensed that there was a butt over my face and I didn't do the sit up. but anyways, it was, it counted. Mm. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it was a joke. They fooled me. You know, they, they, they played a joke on me. Um, and it was necessary for me to uh, sort of take my licks, so to speak, to become one of the guys there. And so I have to reflect back on that, you know, with, uh, um, you know, some good feelings. It was funny and, and I was part of the crew. I was deceived. I'm not sure how sacred that was, but. Well, that's the
1: thing, yeah. you know, when we don't have um, really well thought out rituals, really well thought out initiations. Yes. Then it shows up in a maybe a diluted form yeah think, yeah you
2: know. like uh or 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 a dangerous dangerous sometimes form. a dangerous form, I yeah for mean. example, um you know gang initiations yeah you know may may not be um uh they i i certainly understand why they exist, you know in, in in a way, it's what we're talking about, but maybe it's not so healthy, you know, maybe sometimes it is, maybe it's healthy for that environment, you know it's, yeah. it's an interesting question to explore well, social healing. I think is one of
1: the the reasons for sacred deceptions in shamanism. I think mm. when there's been a great loss, you know, maybe after a war or a battle or a great sickness. Yeah. Uh and the village feels um devastated by those losses, I think they look to the shaman for refocusing. Yeah, you know. And so he might do or she might do uh some kind of a psychodrama using Sympathetic magic and, yeah. and things like that. Uh, and maybe even some elements of contagious magic. Uh, sympathetic being, you know, you're using in a sense a metaphor for the thing that you're representing. Sure. It's representational magic. Yeah. And contagious magic is the idea that you can catch the magic sort of L- like a voodoo doll.
2: Sure. A voodoo doll. Or like the old day, you, you get a get a, a piece of their hair and then you can yeah. affect them yeah, from yeah, a yeah. distance or exactly. something like that. Sympathetic yeah. magic. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. But
1: yeah, so so those things can, can heal a tribe because um, it gives them a channel for their negative feelings, a way of processing, yeah. it, a way of grieving. Uh, in Ireland, the, you know, the way the the women wail at the Irish oh, um, yeah. wakes, right? Okay. Throw them, you know. In, in Italy, the way they throw themselves on the coffins, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it does exist, even with the advent of, of um, monotheism, Christianity, things like that. Yeah. Um, some of the those old pagan ways shine through. Examples of that are within the seasons. You know, Christmas, Easter. Yeah. yeah. You know, these are essentially pagan in nature, but Halloween. But, yeah, Halloween, right? Someone, right? right? Uh, those things have been adapted or adopted into Christian behavior by associating um, a Christian myth around it. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, the rising of Christ for, um, you know, the spring fertility rituals yes and yeah. the day of the dead or all saints day around yeah. uh, uh, halloween and absolutely and so on yeah,
2: yeah. so let's I'm, I'm curious to explore this idea of healing you know sacred deceptions and healing um i recall when my mother passed away we had planned you know some kind of gathering you know a little service you know in her honor and i remember really not feeling like i wanted to do that mm. it had been a long struggle and i really just wanted it all to go away and be finished you know she's gone you know i i, I saw a little value in having the service but i sort of realized that i needed to do it for everybody else and i was dreading it and i had to get up and say a few things and then people spoke a little bit and uh some music was was there and I i actually remember having this conversation with my sister i said you know I was really not looking forward to this. And now I see why society does these things because I feel a lot better. Wow. I needed to have public closure. You know, it was important. And even though I wasn't looking forward to it, I got the benefit of it because our ancestors figured this out a long time ago, that we need to do something like that. It helps us feel better. Mm. In a way, it healed me, you know reminiscing on stories and singing songs and people offering blessings and things like that a bit ritualistic Um, to me. I'm thinking in my mind while I'm sitting there that, you know, none of this really is going to influence anything. None of this really matters. None of this is going to, you know, help her spirit, so to speak. It's all symbolic, you know, but I felt better when it was over. And that's really what, what it was all about for me. I felt better.
1: I think that's a common enough experience that that's why it lasts. That's why it sticks. So yeah, Uh, in in cultures everywhere. Things like funerals and goodbye parties and award ceremonies and and send-offs. Yeah, closure. Are part of closure, yeah. Gotta have it. It's very important in groups, group dynamics.
2: Yeah, we have orientations and graduations and reunions and all these types of ritualistic types of things, you know. And it seems like people feel cheated if they don't get it.
1: Yeah. Why, Why is that? Because it's probably... Uh, It satisfies some basic human needs
2: that are relatively universal. Yeah. And this is something I see in my students a lot. We'll have a a graduation ceremony coming up and I'll hear students talk about how, I don't know if I'm going to go, you know, and I always tell them, you will be thankful that you go. And I always play up the graduations because I see it every year. They show up to the graduations. It's amazing how happy they are and how much fun they're having with their families. And it's worth it. It's worth it when they show up you know um we're talking about sacred deceptions and i think it's interesting to bring up this idea uh that it's an art form it's art it's you know? a sacred art and and to sort of paraphrase picasso's famous saying that you know art is a lie that helps you see the truth yeah that's perfect yeah and and you know these ritualistic types of things where when, when a shaman um lovingly deceives one one person to help them heal or to Change their psychology around an issue or something. It's a lie, but it's that lie with a twinkle in your eye. Hmm. You know that's like uh, it's it's an art form. It's it is a lie that helps you see something that maybe you're not seeing. Yeah, you know. Um,
1: yeah, that's that's perfect. I, I love that quote, and I'm glad that you said that this is an art form because uh, magic plays a huge part in my personal philosophy. And I, I see myself as a spiritual artist Yeah. in many respects. Uh, the rituals that I do, I'm seeking um, qualities that I find in art. You know, it's composition, um, you know, it's concept, a vulnerability of of exploration combined with a uh, harness technique that may have been learned or practiced over time. You know, there's discipline in it. And there's also a lot of freedom in it. Okay within certain, you know, the structure supports the freedom in in many respects. So it is an art form, and you can get better and better and better at it, and you can never fully uh, master every aspect of it. It's limitless and quite beautiful and complex and simple. Sure, I'm saying paradoxes, but it's because it's, you know, ideally it's a reflection of what life is about to you what you believe life is, how you experience life yeah. should be a part of how you express your magic. Yeah. And I think that when it integrates into everything that you do, when it's woven into your healing and your service to other human beings and the way you love and and um, and the formal ritualistic aspects that you perform as a magician, yeah, they're all important and they integrate and, and they inform one another. They become cross-pollinating every aspect that you learn in life deepens your understanding of what magic is there's a lot of nonsense written about magic sure and hopefully by now we've become really clear that we're not talking about prestidigitation or illusion or stage magic here per se we're talking about um the ancient practice of ritual
2: spirituality um yeah you know actual um ceremonial magic. Yeah. Is what I, we're referring I, to. I was going to ask you um uh is there a definition for this kind of magic? There are a lot of definitions. Yeah. Um mm. Alistair Crowley I think said it
1: best. Um you know, he said that um magic is the art and science of, of creating changes in accordance with will.
2: Yeah, that's that's perfect. And wow, that's beautiful.
1: When he's talking about will, he's talking about your true self. Yeah. Uh, not oh. just your whim, per se, but the part of you that that is um, creating its destiny in this world. I like to call myself a psychonaut often because I think that our ability as human beings to try out different ways of looking at things mm-hmm. is a magical process.
2: Yeah, that's beautifully said. How so? Could you describe that a little bit well, more? How, how, how can one um, become a psychonaut or practice psychonautism? Okay, well, first of all, the psycho part of psychonauts from psyche meaning soul,
1: right? Okay. So whether or not you believe in a soul or whatever you think the soul is, let's just say it's your awareness,
2: your consciousness. Sure. Psyche and, you know, yeah. would refer to the mind. Same as in psychology, like, like psychiatry right? Or mm, yeah, psychiatry or yeah.
1: psychiatry. Uh, and then not is referring referring to nautical or sailing. So okay. it's referencing a sailor. So you're you're a sailor of the mind or you're a soul traveler or you're mm. a consciousness.
2: Explorer right. rowing through the ocean of consciousness
1: yeah, or sailing with the winds or yeah. flowing with the currents of thought yeah. and experience. So number one, if you want to be a psychonaut, it helps to start with the attitude that you're exploring. And so it's okay to allow yourself to follow things through from their source to their completion or from somewhere where you are back to the source again. I mean, okay. if you want to explore any thought, and this is um an element that comes in with meditation you have to eventually follow it back to its root yeah you know, what is this series of thoughts leading to but also where is it coming from so right. a psychonaut always explores those things okay but also a psychonaut is really curious to expand their awareness to expand their mind to expand their comfort zone yeah in different ways okay. um there are cultures that do this in a ritual form, uh, and some of them involve shamanic inebriants or potions or what we call entheogens, yeah. you know, substances that produce psychoactive changes right. that tend to remind the person that they're connected to everything else. Indian peyote ceremonies. Peyote ceremonies, and ayahuasca, ayahuasca and, um, you know, uh, mushrooms, mescaline, yeah, uh, etc. Tribes that do iboga, things like okay. that. Exactly. Yeah. All that, Um, and that's a a tradition that's on every continent, just about every ancient culture, and you know has persisted from—pardon the pun—but God, God knows only when when it started, right? (laughs)
2: difference between a sacred deception and a lie is there a difference do you think there is a difference lying is a much more
1: broad term i think i think a sacred deception is uh, limiting the idea of lie to things that are healing on a social level personal level uh, or transformative in a positive way when people tell white lies to spare someone's feelings sure some people might consider that a sacred deception although yeah. i don't okay um i i see it as kind but yeah. i don't necessarily include it in the idea of a sacred deception because to me a sacred deception um is a highly intentional um act that has uh, much farther reaching uh, implications and repercussions yeah uh, positive repercussions if you were a stage magician and you had developed the skill and the craft to do card tricks and to make things disappear and make fire come out of the air, seemingly, those techniques could adapt themselves very well to a shamanistic ritual. But the stage magician
2: isn't necessarily doing a sacred deception. Right, right. That's maybe more of a entertaining deception or you know yeah there are just to say this
1: that there are a few magicians that i've noticed um who are performance magicians who are doing sacred deceptions i think if you youtubed uh a man by the name of eugene berger that's b-e-r-g-e-r okay because he teaches um that magic can be a healing quality that it can have um uh, sacred components to it, even incorporating ideas of philosophy and paganism, um, you know, into the presentation, and it can be a very powerful combination. I mean, let's think about it in reverse: the revivalist, uh, you know, fundamentalist Christian movements, the Pentecostals, and, and they're doing all sorts of speaking in tongues, and uh, the you know, maybe in the evangelical movement, there's preachers that are doing lay on of hands and you are healed and people falling back the moment they're touched. And, you know, you can see Darren Brown, the UK mentalist performing these things on stage, you know, basically demonstrating that a lot of it is, is suggestion and hypnosis and, and things like that. But the ones that are performing those acts, I think their, their intention is to portray the idea of a power that's moving through them. And the net effect is that people pass out, they feel um subjectively like they're being overwhelmed with the power of spirit, and so on so yeah that, that there, there are lots of examples you can see, yeah, I don't necessarily believe that the all the evangelical uh examples are are good examples, I think sure. in many cases, it's um designed to
2: uh fleece people's pockets, so to speak, yeah. How about some of the Catholic traditions? Are there some sacred deceptions in that? I think that a lot of the lives of the
1: saints are potentially examples of sacred deceptions. Um, I don't know because I wasn't there, but it's plausible at least that some of the saints were just wonderful human beings and, and the stories and legends that grew up around them um, help to stoke more belief deeper faith in people because they told of supernatural powers and supernatural happenings um phenomena right manifesting uh levitations and all sorts of things um Mm. and so i think that's an example uh or or if you go back to the biblical idea of uh, christ turning uh water into wine and multiplying the fish and bread or or whatever those are examples of magical events miracles okay that are supposed to inspire people to believe more deeply and what's the intention behind the belief it's pretty clear that the intention is to invoke better feelings better behaviors in people to to get them to to quote unquote be better yeah human beings Right. You know, from their point of view, they have a philosophy about what a better human being would look like and behave like. So they tell their stories in such a way to encourage that. And if it involves uh, some magical, sacred deceptions in the form of parables and stories uh, of miracles and defying scientific truths that we found, yeah, you know, th- that's a component of. I think, the yeah. religious experience to, uh-huh. to many people.
2: Have you heard of the cargo cults in the islands of like Vanuatu and, and Tana? Yes, but you'll have to remind me the details so of that. I just pulled it up to remind myself. In Vanuatu and Tana, apparently there was some um, World War II, um, you know, soldier of some sort, some sort of serviceman uh, by the name of John Frum. And somehow, uh, the indigenous people of these islands created an entire religious cult surrounding this man John Frum. and apparently this this individual really existed. He was just a, just a you know a, a serviceman of some sort in that's the, right. you know in the military. Yeah. but they created these elaborate religions all surrounding John Frum as the messiah, and they would even Uh, Like clear out the forest to make uh, runways so that when John Frum returns someday that he'll have a, uh, you know, a a place to land his plane and they would build like a little tower and they'd even like make like a straw dummy. And they would, they would, you know, the, the, the image of a human to draw John Frum from the heavens down to land his plane. Oh yeah. And then, and then as they were. Sympathetic magic. Yeah and then as they were investigating these cargo cults they found out that um they speak to john from said well, well how do you speak to john from it turned out that they had a radio and what was the radio the radio was like some shaman woman with wires and things all tied around her and she was channeling john from right <laughs> wow. it's 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 cute it's it's you know and and uh uh it, it was an interesting thing to 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 study because All the various little regions, you know, uh, the little islands and things, um, had their, their slight variations. It was the same basic kind of John Frum cult. I only practice Orthodox John Frum religion. Yeah, Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) I'm not into Um, its variants. Yeah. And they can't even figure out who the real John Frum was. Right. You know, but there are all these little variant religions all about John Frum in these islands. That's great. Yeah. Um. You know, it's tempting to just look at it as, as
1: funny or comical. And I think that's definitely one way to look at it, for sure, from our yeah. Western culture. Right. But another way to look at it is that it's an example of um, what we're talking about. It's an example of our innate capacity for ritual. And it also speaks to our desire to have something beyond the everyday experience. That that the the goal, I think, of ritual is to make the sacred experience happen more often in your daily experience yeah
2: I think what you're saying is that we're sort of genetically predisposed towards being psychonauts
1: I think so yeah
2: I think think it's awakening
1: your human potential when you become a psychonaut and and you can explore that in so many different ways right just trying on a new belief for a day that can be challenging for some people because they're worried that well isn't that going to be you know it feels like schizophrenia to them but, but at the same time um it builds flexibility yeah i mean yeah, what do you absolutely. do when you when you adopt two different sides in a debate but then you know what if the, you're taking a debate class and your teacher says today you're going to argue for the death penalty tomorrow yeah. you're going to argue against the death penalty yeah
0: You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Next up, Carlos and Satch continue their conversation about sacred deceptions, magic, and unexplained phenomena, phenomena, phenomena.
2: no I want to go back to something that you had mentioned uh you were talking about magic being basically you know a, a, an agent of change you know to to use your will to create some kind of you know effect or, or some sort of change I am a big fan of the TV show River Monster oh yeah yeah it's an animal planet uh, show fun. with Jeremy Wade yeah so Jeremy Wade goes around the world investigating these you know um stories of of freshwater incidences where people are are attacked by by freshwater monsters and and things like that and he often goes into pretty remote areas you know in different parts of the globe and sometimes he will search and search and search and of course what he tries to do is catch one of these river monsters And I've noticed there's been many episodes where he struggled. He cannot catch the thing he's going after. He's trying. He's trying. He's got his fishing poles in the water. He's trying. He can't catch one. Everything goes wrong. And quite often, he will go to the local shaman in the village. And he always does a great job of really making an effort to honor the culture of the local people. And he'll ask for help. And he'll go to the shaman and the shaman will often do some kind of ritual. Um, they will maybe communicate with the spirit of the river, or or maybe a particular god who is in charge of that type of animal. You know, and they'll do some some rituals and you know some some magic. And I've noticed that almost every single time he does that. He catches the fish that he's looking for right after that, that, um, that rituals performed. And it's very interesting. Every time I watch it, I think that it's not that the ritual really appeased a river God and the the God gave up the fish, but that there was this collective consciousness of will putting together a desire and it amplifies the power, it amplifies and they create this vibration of what they want, you know. It's basically like um um mass positive thinking, you know? And he he always catches what he's looking for after he does the ritual. It's interesting. It, it just caused me to cause me to reflect on that when you described that earlier.
1: Yeah. I guess as a psychonaut, as somebody who practices sacred deceptions, as somebody who is an urban shaman in in a certain respect, a magician, a seeker. I'm open to different interpretations. Like it's not so important to me why it's happening. Yeah. Just that it happens. Yeah, it happens. But I do like thinking about all the different models of magic, you know, explanations of what might be going on to create the effect. Yeah. Like as you were telling me that, you know, you, you mentioned, um, amplification of thought and things like that and that's definitely one of the paradigms one of the yeah uh models of how magic can work sure. uh, there's other models too there's yeah you know uh more modern theories like the morphic fields theory that you know you're there's this morphic field that you're altering when you yeah um you know this is a, a rupert sheldrake is um, from the Royal Society, and he he gets a lot of flack for it, but he okay. believes in it, and he has his arguments to make about it. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah, uh, there's so many different models for why, uh, you know, to, to to theorize why magic works. Yeah, various that it works. Yeah,
2: various hypotheses about various hypotheses,
1: you know, and they all have, uh, they all have something of value to offer. Um. We talked about different formula of the ages. We talked about a, um, viewing the source as feminine versus viewing the source as a masculine yeah. force versus seeing it the way we look at it as as a pair. Yeah. Um, those are just explanations of something that goes well beyond explanation, really. Yeah, yeah. And even if we were to adopt a, a belief that uh, somehow the ritual relaxes the mind and, and gets rid of anxiety it calms and and focuses the mind yeah uh, that can have a physiological effect and that's another way to explain it right there's a hypnotic explanation that sure that you've transformed the uh, inner worldview and the way they're relating with their experience and that can have a cumulative effect on the environment because we are connected to an ecosystem and at some level whether we perceive it consciously or not We're interacting, changing, altering, and uh, interplaying with all these forces that are all around us.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So cats respond, dogs respond. A pet owner usually gets to notice certain things about the way they're connected to their pet. You know, if they if they come home and they're angry, their pet reacts differently than when they're feeling at peace. Right. Uh, There's a there's the common thought I think is that that animals don 't know the difference they 're not smart enough they don 't have that sensitivity, but most animal owners have a tendency to start to recognize that no that 's not oh, true yeah.
2: my animals know
1: they know and and you you I start know. to feel a connection that goes way beyond that,
2: yeah and so it is that and I know when my animals aren 't doing well yeah you know it's it goes it goes both ways and it 's not necessarily something you can visually describe, but it's it could be a gut feeling,
1: yeah right we process we, you know, we have these pre conscious processes that can alert us. Um, through the rest of our physiology. So I don't think that I'm trying to say that all of these magical rituals are just so easily explained by these processes, right? these physical processes. I'm just saying it's useful to be open to all the different models because it helps you to realize that at the end of the day, it makes sense to allow for certain rituals yeah uh believing that you're lucky has a tendency to create more opportunities for you 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 recognize the opportunities for one thing but that belief has a tendency to create more uh offers as well Um, now this isn't by any means uh proof but i'd like to point out that Darren Brown has a wonderful show called The Secret of Luck. You can watch it on YouTube, and it's just another example of how, you know, he does an experiment on a on a whole town, and by the end of it, you recognize that the people who um, believed that they were getting luck by touching this um, clay or, or or stone effigy of a dog in the park, that it was giving them some kind of benefit, right? Cause them to win the lottery and all these things that are documented in the show and, and it surprised Aaron Brown because he he went in with the idea that it would make no difference sure and so he was adjusting his point of view towards the end of the show saying well I can't really explain why but it does seem like people were more lucky yeah. when they believed they were more fortunate
2: yeah yeah
1: and he you know some of it was explainable and some of it wasn't so explainable, right? Right. So why is that? I don't know, but it makes more sense to have more opportunity yeah. than less. So if if I can do something that's not much of a stretch for me, to say, okay, well, I'll be open to, uh, I'll be open to possibility. I'll be open to right. being creative with my thinking patterns. I'll be open to uh, chanting something that makes me feel good about my future and what I'm creating. I'll be willing to visualize a positive event Mm -hmm. and step into that event and really feel that that's true for me. Uh, I'll be willing to burn a candle. I'm willing to, you know, to do these acts that ground the creative mind into reality. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the time it works. That's the weird thing, is that it
2: works. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 <laughs> I can't explain why, but it works. Well, you know, just just it's the, magic. The, the basic concept in quantum physics that you observe something and you change it. Mm. You know, magic is a way of observing something that may, you know, maybe we wouldn't have thought about a particular topic in that way. And by by engaging in some kind of magic, you're now thinking about that topic in a different way. And then yeah. therefore maybe having some kind of influence on it psychology we have uh, cognitive bias. Right?
1: Yes. That which yeah. you are predisposed to believe you will tend to filter from your experiences and you'll yeah. begin to see that thing that you're filtering for.
2: Yes, absolutely. We did a show on internal representations. We did. And I would imagine that magic has all kinds of internal representations for different people in different ways. It does. And that that affects your physiology and that affects who you are and how you behave and the results you get, you know, as we have explored. Yes, yes.
1: Traveled throughout Europe, um, sharing wisdom, Druidic wisdom, and singing songs and giving poetry. And it was thought of as more than just poetry. You know, they weren't just, you know, ancient goths that were um, trying to be taken seriously. Mm. To become a bard took many, many years of devotion and learning. Mm. And when they went around from town to town, they were respected. And they shared their art and they thought of what they were doing. As magic, they didn 't think of it as just music or just poetry, yeah they felt that they were weaving spells, okay according to history and, and uh. traditions. they were affecting um, um, a sacred magic throughout the land in poetic form, and I think mm. anyone who who's ever spent time reading a good story starts to understand the power and transformation of a good story,
2: yeah, well, a story you know, fiction, fictional stories are not real, but boy, they sure can teach you lessons. They sure can change how you feel about things. They sure can, uh, give you a new perspective on your life. Yeah. Just like movies can, or a song can, you know, um, they can create real change. They can. Sometimes I'll do acupuncture on people and they'll get an amazing result. A result that just seems like there's no way just sticking this tiny little needle in somebody's wrist is going to suddenly make that neck feel better, or that head feel better. And it seems magical. And sometimes people will say, you know, how does this, how does acupuncture work? How could it do that? And sometimes I just go, you know, um, there's things about it that we know, but for the most part, it's it's magical. That's great. I'll just say that because it's like, basically admitting that we don't know we know some things that are happening but what we know about it just can't explain how well it works at times you know Uh, and magic i don't know i think that's a great
1: answer because because we don't know
2: yeah right Uh,
1: i mean imagine if we were to, to go back uh you know into let's say the 17th century even Oh, yeah. Right? You and I get burned at the stake. Oh, yeah. Depending (laughs) on where we live, that's undoubtedly true. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you, Satch, have you ever experienced anything that you would describe as possibly supernatural, occult, paranormal, or
2: magical in some way? Absolutely. Um, I had an experience once where uh, I believe something saved me from a terrible car accident. And it went like this. Me and uh, a good friend of mine, my buddy Danny, uh, we used to go fishing at a lake late at night and fish for catfish. It was just something that we did. And this lake was across the street from a movie theater. We decided we would go see a movie. And then after the movie, we would just drive across the street to the lake and, you know, fish for a few hours and then go home late. This particular night... I pulled, I was driving, I pulled out of the parking lot to drive towards the lake. I made a right turn onto the street, and suddenly I couldn't figure out where I was. Now, I had been in this place many times. I knew exactly where I was. It was just literally across the street. I make a right turn, go through a traffic light, make another right turn into the parking lot, and we're there. It's that easy. We get out onto the street, and as I'm approaching the traffic light, I said to my friend Danny, I wait a minute where's the lake he, he looked at me with a puzzled you know look on his face like you crazy it's just straight ahead just just go straight i said okay and as i started going as, as i got really close to the intersection i just thought this just can't be right i was so turned around i hit the brakes to slow down in case i needed to go a different direction and um a car was on the wrong side of the road and there was a an island on, on on the road separating the, the the two lanes, and he blew through. He ran the red light and switched lanes from the wrong side of the road to the proper side of the road through the intersection. And he was probably going about seventy miles an hour. He was going fast. Wow! And I never even got my foot. I had taken my foot off the brake. And he zoom went right past me and I never even got my foot back on the brake. It happened so quickly. And Danny and I realized that had I not been disoriented in a place that I'd been many, many, many times I knew very well, we probably would both have been dead. Wow. And it was a very contemplative night fishing that night. Um, and I have to reflect back on that experience. There is no reason I didn't know where I was. There's, No reason I should have gotten turned around. Um, And the timing was so precise. It was so perfect that that car missed my front bumper by maybe two inches. And I recall in my mind that had I been going a normal speed, the speed that I would have been going, it would have hit me right at the door. That was a pretty magical experience for me in the sense that i can't explain it my behavior was altered my perceptions were altered uh it didn't make sense why it occurred and we were absolutely completely saved because of it wow that was pretty magical i mean it wasn't ritualistic it wasn't um it was a spontaneous it was spontaneous it's something that just happened to occur Um, it wasn't associated with, um, any sort of ritualistic type of thing or maybe an authority figure, uh, changing my belief. It just happened. Um, but that causes me as a fellow psychonaut to want to explore, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Was that really me on some level that did that? Was that something else that was looking out for me? I don't know. I don't know what it was. Um, but that was a very real experience. I love um,
1: that you've had that experience and can relate because you're not alone. I've felt those experiences. So many other people on the planet have felt those experiences. And I really like to keep an open mind about what it's all about. I, I like to keep an open mind about um, interpretations around it. I love the idea that it could very well have been an ancestor protecting you. Yeah. I love the idea love that, that too, your yeah. that your higher consciousness may have stepped in, you know, the holy guardian angel that that higher part of you, the genius yeah. part of you may have stepped in and and yeah. altered things. Right. I love the idea that there is a coordination of the two that maybe um another being stimulated that part of you. Yes. And created that feeling. I love the idea that um you may have had a subconscious premonition. Yeah. You know, a precognitive um awareness of some kind. Right. Stepping in and then seizing control of your yeah of your nervous system for a May, moment.
2: Maybe the higher self of the idiot driving the car right. saved me and therefore saved him. Cause we all three probably would have died. Absolutely. Or four or five, however, however many people were in that car. I love the idea that
1: a blessing you received from someone else or a prayer from yeah. someone else close to you. Yeah. Uh caused a change to occur in accordance with their will, which altered the events at just that moment so that the timing of their driving and the timing of you being confused coordinated in such a way as to avoid disaster.
2: Right, right. Or maybe the possibility that my little black box of luck was full that day
1: <laughs> or th- who knows exactly or the idea that the the mantra that you used to chant yeah that's right. burn through some negative karma allowing you to slip by right. see there's so many different yeah. ways to I take it, it. it's fun it. it's interesting yeah um i think uh, it tickles me that there are so many different yeah. equally plausible supernatural experience uh, yeah. explanations as well as uh, plausible um explanations that could be considered uh, more rational scientific yeah you know explanations uh, and it's it's all wonderful ultimately it doesn't matter because i'm alive yeah and you can appreciate it which uh just says something about you that you appreciate the, the gift of that moment that's magical talking about um the kung fu series yes which we grew up on yes we talk about this a lot we love the show and you you mentioned a story that i think really relates to
2: this whole idea of sacred deception would you mind sharing that again yeah absolutely um uh, there was an episode where young kane was reflecting back on his time at the monastery the shaolin monastery and in this episode there was an old doctor an old monk doctor and a man was brought to him who had somehow, you know, mutilated his hand. I think his, he had cut his finger off. This old doctor was realizing that this man was getting sick, that, that there was infection, and that his arm needed to be amputated. But the patient was very resistant to doing this. He would not let the doctor cut his arm off. So what the doctor did was he put some uh, rice up on the window ledge to attract uh, a crow that I guess (laughs) lived in the area. And so the crow landed on the window ledge and the doctor convinced the patient that this crow was the spirit of his finger and it needed to be appeased and there was something that it wanted. And basically what he got the man to believe is that what the, what what the spirit wanted was the treatment that the doctor had to give, which was to cut off the arm. Hmm. And so the man was screaming and crying, please doctor, you know, m- make the spirit go away, you know, make the spirit go away because the spirit wanted, wanted to take his life, but you could appease the spirit by just giving him your arm. And he deceived his patient into accepting the treatment that he needed to save his life. Wow. And that just seems like a pretty sacred deception. Wow. Um, beautiful
1: story. It is. It, it reminds me of, um, do you remember when we did Vipassana? Some yes. of the Dharma stories, the Dharma talks that were at the end of the night after meditating for yeah, 10 or 11 hours. Yeah, I loved hours. those. You oh. know, you remember the one about um, the woman who refuse to release her dead baby yes i love that story it sounds so morbid and grotesque but yeah do you know, do, do tell it okay well i just think it was amazing i actually wept when i heard it um because i just recognized the therapeutic value in right. letting go and i think that was the the core of the story but um you know apparently there was someone who came to the to the Buddha, uh, asking for assistance because this one woman whose child had died um, just wasn't letting go of the idea that that her baby would wake up one day. She had this delusion that she was suffering, and it was causing suffering, not just for her, but for those around her. A lot of misery was coming from her just not accepting that her baby was dead. And so she held on to her baby, and that delusion that her baby was just sleeping, she just wouldn't let go. So the Buddha reflected on this and he decided that he needed to help. And so uh, he went to the village and he had an audience with her or she had an audience with him rather, because I think she believed that the Buddha could help her with this problem that she had. Yeah. I think in her mind, the deception was that he would somehow be able to get her baby to wake up. Yeah. Right. So the Buddha used this opportunity. help her and what he did is he uh, after she said you know please please um gautama can you um cause my baby to wake up my baby is still asleep and it's been asleep for so long and won't wake up and it's it's distressful and and all these and the buddha recognizing her suffering found an insightful solution by asking her to go and he said he would do it on the condition that she go Uh, to every uh, home and every local village and collect at least one grain of some kind from any home, any household where there has been no loss. And so it seemed like a simple task. And he said, if you do this, I will help you with your situation. So she agreed Naturally and accepted that and went out around and and everywhere she went of course she could not find a place where no one had suffered loss of any kind so she comes back to the Buddha after a very long and arduous search and Is depressed and says, you know, I can't find any place where There hasn't been any loss. So how am I ever gonna get my baby to wake up? Yeah, and at that moment, she was willing to to release her baby. And I remember the Buddha taking the baby from her. Yeah. And her finally being willing to to realize that her loss doesn't make her alone. She's part of the human race, that we all lose things. We all lose things that are important to us. You know, the lives of our loved ones and and our own lives. Uh, And it's just part of life, that life is suffering Mm. or contains suffering in it. And I think that moment of... Conveying a truth to her through a sacred deception, getting her to realize something of value without spelling it out, but allowing her to come to that truth through the process, the ritual that she had to do in order to get it transformed her in such a, a way or to such a degree that she was willing to finally break free or let go of the delusion she'd been suffering yeah, and truly allow healing to enter into her life by letting go of something she was attached to. Yeah, and all of that was facilitated through a clever
2: ruse, a sacred deception. Right, so beautifully done. You know, yeah. I'm reminded of another story we would have learned during our meditation training. Um, it's the story of the young man who went to the Buddha and said that his father had died and he wanted him to do a ritual that would open the gates of heaven so his father could enter heaven Mm. and so the buddha told the boy um go get some pots you know some clay pots and fill or get two clay pots fill one of them with uh ghee clarified butter and the other one with stones, and then bring them back to me. And so he thought, oh, good, good, good. He's he's going to do this ritual, and it's going to help my father. And so he he goes and he gets the pots, and he fills one with with ghee, and he fills one with uh, stones, and then he says, okay, sir, I've I've done what you've asked. I've, I have the two pots, and he says, okay, now take them to a, like a pond or a, a lake or something. He said, and and put the pots in the water so that they sink down underneath. He says, okay, very good. And he said, get some monks to come and be prepared to chant and take a stick and then put the stick under the water and break open the pot of ghee and then also break open the pot that holds the rocks and then have the priests chant, you know, um, rocks, please float to the top and butter, please sink down to the bottom. And as he was telling this kid, the story, the kid started to smile and realize that he was being teased by, by the Buddha. <laughs> and he said, sir, you're teasing me. You, the, the rocks can't float and the butter's not going to sink. And he said, yes. And now you understand that the deeds of your father are what will cause him to go where he goes after he dies if his deeds were good and light like butter he floats up to heaven if they were bad then he sinks down to hell and it's just the natural way hmm. you know and and the kid learned the lesson that okay i see i see there's there's no ritual that i can i can do to cause my father to go into heaven he's going to enter based upon his own merits that's so great just the whole idea that These
1: metaphors can convey an idea and a feeling and a whole experience. Once that experience is conveyed, they have that experience. They own it. It's not just something that was told to them because what happened is they actually participated as active listeners to that sacred deception, that story. They took it on and that change happened in a very tangible way for that person. Yeah. So I just love that. that. That is also magic. You know, it's causing change to happen in accordance with will, right? Yes. And imagine the results, the, imagine the, the differences between um, having made a realization like that, a powerful, uh, profound realization, versus not having made a realization and being stuck where you were. Yeah. Right. That there's, there's such contrast between those two things and the and the one thing that caused it, the one thing that stimulated, it was a sacred deception. Yes. I love it.
0: listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. The show is produced by Oliver Altine. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Altine. You can find more information on our website, authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.